He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Hey there, this is Jack Heald, the co-host and producer of the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with a brief note about today's episode. Phil and I tried to use a new platform for uh, hosting and recording the show. We'd done some testing with it. It seemed like it was going to do a great job for us. It offered all kinds of new potential that wasn't available with the previous platform we'd been using. So after testing, we said, let's do it. We're going to do it. And we had trouble with our prior episode that we recorded with this particular platform, but it was good enough. And so we used it today. However, with this episode that you're seeing, the platform failed miserably. It failed in this way. About 55 minutes into our conversation, it just simply locked up on our guest and we were never able to get him back. Therefore, the end of the show is pretty abrupt, not remotely as polished as we'd like it to be. Nevertheless, we agreed that the conversation itself up to that point was compelling enough that we wanted to go ahead and release it anyway. So I apologize for the abrupt, not at all polished end to today's show. Nevertheless, I think you're going to enjoy the guest. And going forward, we're going back to our old recording platform, less flashy, more reliable. Thanks for tuning in. Everybody, we've got a show today. Most of the time, we're super sciency, which is good for people like, well, most of the people that we have on. I'm not one of those real sciencey people, and I'm thrilled, Phil, today that we have somebody who's I feel like might be more my kind of person. So why don't you give us the the intro here? Yeah, really excited to have this conversation today with Erwin LaCour. This is going to be a, a, a little bit different and in a good way because Erwin is really a, I think, has a pretty unique take on some of the aspects of health that uh, perhaps we don't get into as much as we should uh, on our sort of diet-focused uh, discussion. So really excited to dive into some of these other areas. I think Erwin is our first uh, world record holder that we've had on as a guest on this show. So we're going to get into that as well. But Erwin, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, give a little bit of your story and what got you here. All right. So um, right now I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I live. I'm originally from Brittany, France. Nobody's perfect. And I've been living in the U.S. since 2009. I came here originally to present to the world, like to, to, to the United States, a method that's called MoveNAT, which is also about natural movement. So the idea was to exercise in a way that was as biologically relevant as possible, as evolutionary relevant as possible, which means all the movements we're supposed to do as a member of a human species, we, when we're a kid, we move naturally, we crawl, we 
hang and climb and balance and jump and run and move things around, all right? So if you look at that whole scope of movement, that's our human natural movement. You can become very good at it. It can be very technical. And in fact, it is the original way of exercising and being strong and physically capable. So I came here in the United States in 2009 to teach this. The MoveNet company has now instructors all around the world. We have events all around the world and certification. We certified people in the ability to teach this system. And more recently, in the last few years, my emphasis is on breath holding, which I call breath hold work, as a meditation, as something that is good for you, good for health, good for your physical health, and good for your emotional, mental and emotional health. And that can be practiced just like a meditation is actually a meditation. Okay, you're going to have to... I, I did a little bit of reading about you, and I just want to hear... I want to hear it from your own lips. What's about, first of all, world record is... I want to know how it's certified, measured, so forth and so on. We'll get into all the health stuff here in a minute, but this is just almost the nuttiest thing I have ever heard of. <laughs> all right. So I just would like to right away have, I'm sorry about it, but I have to rectify that information. I'm not a world recall holder. I have the CMAS US national record for static breath holding, which means that I held my breath the longest. That's that's what it is. So it's it's an amusing performance. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it's true that most people are terrified just at the idea of holding their breath because everybody knows that it's very unpleasant. There is a way to turn it and to make it become somehow pleasant. In fact, in my practice, I find it very pleasant. And also simply because everybody knows that if you keep doing that, it's so vital to breathe that it could have consequences. But in fact, it not only if done properly, it does not have consequences. Actually, it can have very good consequences, very good outcomes, very good for your health to hold your breath from time to time. Okay. So what's your record? The duration, the official duration was seven minutes, eight seconds. I must say that's way below. It's below what I can do. My personal in my personal practice, I can go beyond eight minutes. But it was not a good day because the the weather suddenly changed. The water became cold. The air became cold. I got cold, and once you you become cold, you tense. Your body tenses, tries to warm itself up. You know, of course, thermogenesis. And it also consumes a lot more oxygen. And therefore, your whole time is going to be reduced. So that day, I was not able to hold my breath as long as it, it literally cost me a whole minute. But it's okay. I will fix that soon, normally mid-October. So, you know, this is so interesting to me in the context of our beliefs and the limits that we think our bodies can go to. And many people are under the impression that, you know, if you go a day without drinking water, you'll die. 
If you go a couple of days without eating food, you can't survive. And, you know, when you really start to look into these things, you realize, like, you know, that the record for the longest fast is is over a year. The longest recorded medically supervised fast was over a year. And the person not only survived, but thrived. And, you know, many people would say, well, if you don't breathe for a minute, you know, or maybe two minutes at the most, you know, you're going to die. You're going to be brain, your oxygen, your brain will be deprived of oxygen and that will be fatal. And here you are saying that, you know, you can go eight minutes without breathing and not only does it not harm you, but it actually makes you better. So, you know, why do you think people have these kind of limiting beliefs to start with? And then, you know, the other thing I want to really understand, kind of get into is, you know, how much of what you do is the physical training versus the mental training part of it? Yes. All right. So those are two very, I could, let me answer the first question first. Why is it that people have in mind those, those limitations? Well, especially when it comes to holding your breath, everyone has tried to hold the breath the longest. And typically that's a few seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, sometimes three minutes in people who are either healthier or have more willpower somehow, but it doesn't go beyond that. So it, it does seem, through everyone's personal experience, it seems obvious that you will die beyond that minute, those that first minute, those first two minutes, three minutes. Anyone who has had a near-drowning experience also feel that way, that they were on the verge of dying because they couldn't breathe anymore. And then also very few people practice practice this, this ability or other abilities. So since there are very few people who investigate those limits and to also push them, very few people are aware that it's possible. Yeah. So it's called conventional wisdom, but it's more convention than wisdom. And those limits are... But then, yes, right to your next question, Philip. Actually, it's a great segue. What's the part that matters the most between physiology and and the the psychological aspect of it or emotional aspect of it? In fact, the emotional aspect of it or mental aspect of it, which is in fact the neurological aspect of it, is much more important than it looks. It may seem that it's a matter of seconds or literally one, two minutes before you run out of oxygen when you don't breathe. But the same way that person was able to fast a whole year, which we agree is very extreme. However, one week, two weeks, one month is not extreme. A lot more people than we think do that or have done that, and including medically recorded and without any consequence, actually with positive consequences. The same goes with the people who hold the breath systematically, methodically, especially in the what's called the free diving community. Uh, free diving being a sport. So that sport is all based on holding your breath, that you hold your breath doing nothing like I do. Because, of course, I'm French. So I'm lazy. I do nothing. Just hold my breath. Uh, other divers, uh, they either dive for depth. So then they are going to undergo extreme partial, you know, very high partial pressure because of depth. And others do that in pools. So, so it's a dynamic brief free diving, but all based on holding your breath. 
and much more studies than we believe have been made on those practitioners. And there's not a single study that ever showed that there were, for instance, what's called brain insults. So damage to the brain, it's actually the opposite. The opposite because it, it for instance, it, well, I can leave the list of physiological benefits for maybe another, another question. But yes, the part that is the mental part, the emotional part, is extremely important in the ability to hold your breath. That is how you can keep overriding the autonomic nervous system. Because when you make the decision to hold your breath, it's a decision that your conscious mind makes. All right. So we're talking about the prefrontal cortex, consciousness. Then in the background, always you have the autonomic nervous system that operates our breathing so that we can be busy doing something else, living life. And now we have a conflict of executive powers within the brain. We have one that says, I want to hold my breath and therefore I can do so. So I do it because I can. And the autonomic nervous system is like, hold on. It's my job to regulate breathing. So conscious mind overrides the subconscious mind or the autonomic nervous system. And quickly the autonomic nervous system says, no, I'm going to override you, my friend. This is my job, my responsibility. So now I'm going to agitate you until you breathe again because this is creating a whole mess. Homeostasis needs to be acquired again. We need our balance back. This isn't safe. Whatever. There's a whole internal dialogue and negotiation going on there. But if the mind, the conscious mind, understands what is happening physiologically and neurophysiologically, actually, and therefore mentally and emotionally, through conscious intention, we can override the autonomic nervous system all the way, all the way to the breaking point. And the breaking point is when your autonomic nervous system says, enough, done. That's the limit. That's when your mind of a matter doesn't work anymore. Because if I don't override you, conscious mind, then we all die inside. There is a physiological limit. But that physiological limit is way further than we consciously believe. So just removing that belief that we're going to run out of oxygen quickly, that it's going to harm our brain, kill brain cells, which is a myth, just by removing that, already and understanding that by staying calm and meditating, we can explore much further. That's already a very strong point. And I just want to finish on that by saying that this is what explains why my students are able to multiply their maximum breathful time by two, three or four, sometimes in, I've seen five times longer compared to pre-instruction time. So I'm asking people, hold your breath as long as you can. I'm not teaching you anything. Just do it. Do the test. Okay, it's one minute. After, if they train with me in a retreat, after three days, they can already hold their breath three or four times longer. When I do the, the online program, it's after four weeks, same results. There's no way whatsoever that substantial physiological adaptations 
could take place in such a short amount of time because physiological adaptations take longer than that. So what's the explanation? It's a change of mind. It's a change of perception. It's a change of self-narrative. It's a change of belief. It's a change of response. It's a new way of, of mastering your inner experience while undergoing that physiological stress. It's a stress of, it's basically a respiratory stress that is not based on ventilation, but it's based on the non-ventilation that then affects cellular respiration. And when cellular respiration is affected, obviously, this is maybe the most primal, most instant form of life threat anyone could ever go through. So, can breathe. It's terrible. But we can overcome that. And that's what I teach. So many questions. The I think the, the biggest one is the one that, that most people would be asking is why? Uh, why? Why bother? Air's free. It's mm -hmm. not like we're going to use it up if we keep breathing. True. Um, yeah, why, yeah. Why did you start? And should we? Yeah, completely. Well, know thyself and you'll know the universe and the gods, attending that there will be more than one. But uh, number one... So, so that's a spiritual answer. Completely. A very physical question. All right, so... For and me, I, and I, don't, I don't have a problem with that, but I just want to point out that's a spiritual answer. It is, but at the same time, all right. What is not spiritual in this world or in this life? In this moment, we may think that we're not having a spiritual experience. We're just talking about health, talking about breath holding, just talking about whatever natural movement or diet. This is not a spiritual matter. Okay. Well, if you ask anyone, and by the way, we can absolutely approach this practice from the pure physiological angle only, completely rationally, we can talk about erythropoiesis. We can talk about angiogenesis. What, what was that word? Well, you know, the prediction of red blood cells, erythropoiesis, the genesis of red blood cells in the bone marrow, which okay. is obviously when you're going to not ventilate, you have to deal with an elevation of CO2, yes, but you also have to deal with a decrease in oxygen, Availability, starting with bloodstream. You bet that the biological unit that we are, because that's what we are, a biological unit. From the biological perspective, that's what we are. From the spiritual perspective, what are we? We're a spiritual unit too. We're a soul. Okay, so let's talk about the biological unit. That biological unit wants to stay alive. And we understand that the reason why we breathe all the time is because there are those molecules in the air the oxygen that enables us to keep the fire on. And because we're an energy system, we're energy systems within one energy system. So to fuel all these energy systems, we need oxygen. If we don't replenish our oxygen quickly, we will indeed die. So that's an important preoccupation. So when we expose ourselves 
to what's perceived as a threat. And I'm not even talking about the mental, emotional, neurological side of it. I'm talking about the purely physiological part of it. It induces plasticity, of course. It's going to create positive changes because the, the system that we are, the biological that unit that we are wants to stay, stay alive, identifies a repeated threat and says and, and understands I must prepare for that, must become stronger. So if you expose yourself to bouts of hypoxemia, just hypoxemia, I'm not even talking about hypoxia, just the reduction of oxygen saturation in the bloodstream, which is going to be a first uh, indication that, hey, down the line, that means hypoxia, potentially including cerebral hypoxia. Now, this, this is very extreme. What do you think that system is going to do? It's going to prepare for war. It's going to prepare for it. So it's going to, there's going to, going to be a whole cascade, a beneficial one of physiological adaptations to prepare for that kind of battle. You're going to equip yourself. So that means angiogenesis, creating more new vascularization, new blood vessels, more red blood cells. So the bone marrow is going to be able to, to produce more red blood cells, more hemoglobin of better quality also, means the, the spleen is going to better filter that, better shape those hemoglobin cells. It's going to also increase the size of the spleen, but we're not talking about the spleen enlargement. That's the bad condition. We're talking about literally a healthy, healthily enlarged spleen that can have more oxygenated, super oxygenated blood as a reserve when you start to lack oxygen. Cerebral blood flow is going to get much better. When we talk about new blood vessels, we're not just talking about the arms and the legs, because where do you think that blood and that hemoglobin should go first. The two most noble, most important, most vital organs in the whole body are the brain and the heart. None of those can stop at all. So the heart is going to be healthier, the brain is going to be healthier, so that's going to help your cognition. A lot like the microglia, all the whole system that uh, surrounds your brain that cleanses the brain and nourishes the brain and heals the brain constantly, with the cerebral spinal fluid, all of that, all aspects of that is going to be getting a special treatment of like, okay, we're going to take good care of you because you're going to battle and you need to be ready. We cannot deoxygenate. We cannot get hypoxic. We have, therefore, to become super oxygenated. And that's just the physiology. That's just the physiology right. because mentally, emotionally, there are also new neural pathways that are going to be created in the brain to handle the stress. So resiliency, the ability to become, to stay patient, to stay composed, to stay positive, to be patient, to be confident, all the positive stuff. Those are neural pathways that are going to be created and then myelinated, so reinforced in the brain to make you able to better handle, always better handle the stress that is taking place at a physiological level. So it's a whole world. It's not just like, oh, why would I do that? Well, why would you exercise anything 
in your body or in your mind? Why do you practice any skill? Why do you practice any form of fitness? Why do you do any form of therapy? Why do you diet in any way? Well, it's simply because you want to improve who you are, your physiology, your mentality, your spirituality, your ability, whatever it is. You want to be or become a better version of who you are. And to become a better version of who you are, it doesn't happen without some work. So you got to get to practice. Voila. <laughs> yeah, this is amazing. So first of all, as a heart surgeon, of course, I'm very glad to hear you say that the heart is one of the two noble organs in the body. But you know, as a heart surgeon, I deal with this physiology every day in the operating room and this struggle, this battle, as you said, uh, as people's hearts, you know, aren't working optimally. And so the physiology of this is fascinating to me, the spiritual part of it as well. And I'm torn between which avenue to go down. But just to maybe go to a kind of basic physiologic question, I guess, that people might have, understanding that it's actually the buildup of the carbon dioxide in our blood that stimulates us to breathe. It's not you know, the lack of oxygen or lowered oxygen levels, as many people believe. But over are you, time, are you able to adapt to higher carbon dioxide levels? Is that one of the adaptations that occurs with this training? It, it's one of them. It's one of them. It's the, the infamous CO2 tolerance. And yes, okay, I agree with you and also disagree with you. And let me explain why on the, the fact that CO2 is the main driver to the, what is called the urge to breathe. So when you exercise, obviously, yes, your metabolic rate goes up. You consume more energy. You burn more oxygen. The byproduct that CO2 needs to be exhaled. But you're also breathing faster because you do need more oxygen. So it's not just the CO2 that is going to trigger the urge to breathe. To me, I've been going away from the notion of CO2 tolerance. I simply talk about tolerance. Tolerance. And tolerance is in the, it's in the brain. It's in the nervous system. And it's also in the mindset. So it's, which, by the way, brain, I mean, consciousness and emotions, they stem from, from the brain, which is a biological tissue. So it's basically also an expression of the body. Like a, you look at goosebumps on your skin, you're like, well, that's purely physical. Well, we don't think of emotions as purely physical, and yet we can feel them in our body. It's physical. There is, and yet, yes, also, we are spiritual beings, and I can, I can talk about that later and how it's, why it's important to understand that. But why is it, let's get back to that idea. It's, to me, it's, it's a myth that CO2 alone is triggering the urge to breathe. And let me give you several examples. So typically we talk about the, the chemoreceptors, there are central chemoreceptors, peripheral chemoreceptors, and we're told that most importantly, the, the central chemoreceptors, which are in the, in the respiratory centers in the brainstem, they are going to 
monitor exactly the pH of, of the bloodstream since all of our tissues have a specific pH. So any change in that pH is going to require a, a regulation. So again, always homeostasis. So the, the, the pH decreases because CO2 goes up, chemoreceptors are like, whoop, we need to regulate that. If that becomes a little too extreme, then we start to become agitated. And so it's going to, say, ventilate faster until you somehow flush out that excess CO2 and then you'll feel fine and you'll be recovered. That works especially for, to, in my opinion, for uh, exercise. So when we exercise, that is very true. We need to release more CO2 since we produce more CO2. We also need to inhale more oxygen since we burn more oxygen. Now, when you hold your breath, it's a little different. It's actually very different because the, to me, what's a common misconception is that it's only the increase of CO2 that is going to trigger the urge to breathe. So you hold your breath, you're not doing anything. You stop your ventilation. Yes, but the cellular respiration doesn't, doesn't stop. It never stops. So we keep using oxygen. We can producing CO2. That CO2 accumulates in the, uh, the bloodstream, in the lungs, in the plasma. And then those chemoreceptors are like, okay, we need to regulate that. So it would make sense to think that the moment we exhale, we feel better. So it's more the exhale that's going to relieve us than the inhale. So it's not especially air hunger, what's called air hunger. It's not that necessarily we need oxygen right away. In fact, we don't need oxygen right away, not even after a whole minute. The brain not only still does not lack oxygen, it probably starts to get more oxygen. That's one of the responses. So, oh, ventilation is paused. Therefore, oxygen reserves are, if this keeps going, oxygen reserves are going to go lower and lower. We better send more oxygen to the heart and to the brain. So, what's the problem? The problem is our response. It's not just a response to CO2 elevation. The problem is our it's perceived as a mental and emotional response, but it's, it's triggered by, in the brainstem and, and then in the limbic brain, it's, it's triggered by what's perceived as a threat, a vital threat. The moment, every time, every single time, regardless of the nature of the threat, anytime we feel threatened, that the threat is legit or not, that it is imminent or more distant in the future, we get tense, we get agitated. It's the famous fight-or-flight response. So why is that? Because most of the time that, by the way, that we fly, that we move away, or that we fight to deter the threat, to create a distance with the threat, we need agitation. We need agitation. We need movement. So when that threat is perceived... What we want is to agitate, not consciously, but unconsciously. The nervous system wants to agitate itself to create a distance, 
with a threat. What is perceived as a threat? It's not just the elevation of CO2. For instance, when you hold your breath, you take a large breath. Normally, you exhale, and now you are not exhaling. So the intrapulmonary pressure remains high, unnaturally or unusually high. And that itself is a threat right there. That's not just the elevation of CO2. The moment you hold your breath, the elevation of CO2 is not substantial enough for you to want to breathe. And you already want to breathe. How come? Fear, conscious fear, unconscious fear. What's the unconscious fear? The unconscious fear is that, for instance, your ventilation is not going to be resumed. So that intrapulmonary pressure that's way too high, that needs to be regulated. And then you consciously override your autonomic nervous system. You understand the, the decision behind it, but your autonomic nervous system doesn't get a clue because there's no communication between the two. They do not speak the same language at all. The prefrontal cortex understands the language of abstraction, representation, thoughts. I think that holding my breath is a good thing. What does that even mean to the autonomic nervous system? Zero. The autonomic nervous system senses everything, all kinds of inputs happening in the body, and then based on that, triggers a response. Good or not, efficient or not, whatever it, it believes it needs to do to stay alive, it's going to do. Most of the time, guess what it is? Agitation. So you have intrapulmonary pressure very high. There's a reflex in the, again, in the brainstem, I think it's called the, the Brewer hearing reflex that says that up to a certain point of intrapulmonary pressure, you should not inhale more. So the fact that you are holding your breath and maintaining that intrapulmonary pressure, intrathoracic pressure, that high already is a threat. So there's that. But then most importantly, and I hope I'm not too long. Oh, this is fascinating. It's an oxygen problem. And I can completely blast that idea of CO2 tolerance is the main thing because the body has no way of knowing of the body does not react to a lack of oxygen. <laughs> this is the most seriously. <laughs> I don't know whoever came up with that myth that so many people believe in today, whoever is interested in breath work and things like that. Oxygen levels are much more important and vital than CO2 level. You can deal, the body can deal with crazy levels of hypercapnia, high levels of CO2, with, and it's complete, going to be completely harmless. Not pleasant, but harmless. Whereas the body cannot deal with deep hypoxia because that means death, including like death of, of brain cells to begin with, and then just death. Then cardiac arrest. Okay. So let me give you this example to show you and then we can talk about the science behind it. Maybe I may not be an expert, but I'm going to use a very simple three example. So one example in three to understand the importance of oxygen and why CO2 may not be the most important uh, player right there. Let's say you hold your breath for one minute. And every time you reach the one minute, that's your breaking point. You need to breathe. You cannot go beyond that. That's one minute. Okay. 
you're going to say, well, that's my CO2 tolerance threshold. At that point, after one minute of holding my breath, you take a, you take a large breath, you hold your breath. One minute, you have to breathe, no matter what. So your CO2 tolerance, extreme CO2 tolerance is one minute. Do you agree with that? Okay. Yep. All right. Now, what happens if you exhale, forcefully exhale all of your air? How long does it take for you to want to breathe badly? <laughs> 10 seconds. Not very long. <laughs> Immediately. 10 seconds. 20 seconds at the most, but probably like 10 seconds. Okay. So does that mean that now you have lost all your CO2 tolerance? Where is your CO2 tolerance gone? Why is it that you cannot hold your breath? for one minute when you exhale your air first, then you're going to tell me, well, of course, because I'm lacking oxygen. Ah, okay. So already we're starting to understand that something in the body senses that we start a breath hold with low levels of oxygen in the lungs, not in the body, not in the brain, not in the bloodstream, just in the lungs to begin with. So low intrapulmonary pressure, and that itself is already a threat sufficient to trigger the urge to breathe within seconds. Nothing to do with CO2 elevation because within 10 seconds, there's no CO2 elevation. I mean, it's you wouldn't feel it. Okay. Now, the same person who can hold their breath for one minute, but that's their limit. And you say that's their limit, not because they lack oxygen, but because their CO2 level, blood CO2 level is, is too high. You have them breathe pure oxygen for a whole hour, let's say just half hour, pure oxygen. The next time they hold their breath, if they hold their breath right away, right after that, they will hold their breath for two minutes and a half. So wait. When they just hold their breath, their CO2 tolerance, their threshold is one minute. When they exhale forcefully, it's 10 seconds. And when they breathe pure oxygen, now it's two point, it's two minutes and something. So how many CO2 tolerance thresholds do you have? Three? No. So what is the main denominator here? It's oxygen level. First example, you have regular levels of oxygen. You start with a full tank. Second example, you start with an empty tank. You can never have empty lungs. It's not physiologically possible. There's always a residual volume. But still, you start with forced exhale, and you want to breathe right away because you have sensors in your body, not only the, the peripheral chemoreceptors. You actually have other... By the way, I think that it was in 2019, like the, 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 the Nobel Prize for Medicine was about oxygen sensing. That happens at the cell level already. So the cells already inform the cells in the tissues directly. They already can, you have what's called like trans transcript factors, whatever, like you have little spies that, that inform the brain, hey, in this area, we're lacking oxygen. In that area, we have too much oxygen. So bring the oxygen that way. All right, and that's super important. Because otherwise, how does the system know where to send oxygen and how much? Right. So if, if you rely exclusively on the chemoreceptor monitoring the pH of the bloodstream, all right, that's fine, but it's only monitoring the pH of the bloodstream. How do you know if your toes need oxygen, 
your eyes need oxygen. S- certain part of the uh, area of your brain needs more oxygen. Your liver needs, needs more oxygen. How do you know? How does the body know? It's got to have other systems of information in real time. Because CO2 is levels is not the concern. Again, when you breathe pure oxygen, then you can multiply your breathful time, maximum breathful time by two. So all of a sudden, how come CO2 saturation is not a problem anymore? How come all of a sudden by just breathing pure oxygen, then your CO2 tolerance goes of a roof? That doesn't make any sense. So it does show that oxygen is the main thing that the body monitors. And that makes sense because obviously... It's, we, we understand that oxygenation is extremely important for health. And we also know that poor cellular respiration means pure cellular oxygenation, tissue oxygenation, and that it triggers a cascade of health issues. It deteriorates health when your body is not able to properly oxygenate all of its tissues. So what do you guys think? Of course, it's important. It's important physiologically to begin with. Uh, but then what it does to the, to the brain, what it demands from the mind, implies a, a practice that is going to trigger neuroplasticity, positive changes in the brain that are going to be beneficial for you in your life. Because if you can handle that stress that you self-induce, well, then the positive changes in your response that are a mental response and an emotional response have the, the, the potential to carry over other aspects of your life, other events or situations of your life. Yeah, let's dig into that a little bit more. So you said this is sort of a meditation-like state that you get into during these when you're doing this. And you know, you've talked about basically that you need to override or suppress, you know, your autonomic nervous system, which we're not supposed to be able to control consciously. So uh, talk about what goes into that. What, you know, I guess I I would want to know what's going through your mind or what isn't going on in your mind when you're doing these long breath holds. Not much. It's a meditation, so you know you're not supposed to think. <laughs> I think very little. I observe, I feel, and I episodically entertain thoughts sometimes, um, but I tend to be very discriminate with what I'm thinking about and how I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about. And uh, it uh, is it is typically dedicated to supporting um, the experience that I want to induce. So when you hold your breath, physiological changes take place. They identify as being unpleasant, a concern, a threat. So it's a self-induced stress And therefore, it triggers an autonomic response and up the chain, a limbic response. You get emotional and up the chain, a mental psychological response. Oh, my God, thoughts. Oh, my God, I want to do this. I don't want to do this. It's whatever. You're going to try to 
negotiate that it's okay to stop. So you have to be very focused about your self-narrative. The self-narrative is everything. The self-narrative is what you're going to believe, is what you choose to believe. And you must develop the skill of, and it's called mindfulness, one being aware of how you operate your own mind and who operates your own mind, your mind. So the mind aware of itself, that's the principle of meditation. It's complete awareness of the mind as of how it operates itself, how it expresses itself. And that includes what the mind believes. So if you buy into the agitation, it's like now you have two two guys. You have your conscious mind, and then you have your primal brain, survival brain that says, hey, why don't we stop doing this? You know it's not sustainable. And the conscious mind is like, I know, but I know what I'm doing. I'm practicing. What are you practicing? I'm practicing self. I'm practicing my ability to know myself and to define and master my own experience, regardless of the stress. That's the name of the game. So every unpleasant thought as an antidote. The stress is physiological. It becomes emotional. That's the nervous system agitating itself, wanting a way out of this experience, wanting the regulation back to normal, back to safety, back to feeling safe, back to feeling normal. That's what it wants. And you want to challenge that status quo to grow. It's about self-growth. It's about expanding Yourself, it's about expanding your ability. So when you become impatient and you become impatient quickly as a beginner, you become impatient quickly, what is the antidote? It's patience. Huh. <laughs> All I, right. Uh, if you become frustrated, what's the antidote? Well, of course, it's contentment. So what do you mean contentment? This is horrible. I can't be content. Yes, you can. If you want it, you can. If you believe in it, that's what you want. Can you master your inner experience or not? Yeah, but there's no but. It's like, what do you want? So, and it's going to say, well, but I don't have patience. Well, it's not about having patience. It's about doing the patience. You must produce it. If you want it, you must produce it. You must establish it. So you must do it. And if you do it, then you become it. You become, you enter the state of patience. And when you have, you do a patience and you enter the state of patience, you are that patience, then you have it. That's the way it works. So meditation as just observing your thoughts, that doesn't get it. Because if you observe your thought when you hold, already when you don't hold your breath, typically people are like, that's way too many thoughts to observe. They go too fast. It goes in every direction. And a lot of them are unpleasant. What do I do with that? Oh, keep observing. And that's why people say, you know what? Meditation is not for me. 
because I've tried to observe my thoughts and I forgot about observing my thoughts. I was frustrated with my thoughts. I was just not happy or confused with my thoughts. I decided that was not a good idea to do that. <laughs> All right. So when you are holding your breath, only when you meditate, you use slow breathing to regulate your mind, to calm down your mind. So not only you avoid any stress, but on top of that, you can use the tool of breathing, nasal, diaphragmatic, slow breathing to calm down your mind. When you hold your breath, not only you start creating a stress right away because it looks like it's a good idea. And on top of that, you cannot use slow breathing to regulate that stress. How do you even meditate through that? And there's also that other conventional uh, wisdom or it's like more myth that you must use slow breathing to calm down your mind. Well, when I hold my breath, obviously I'm stressed physiologically. I cannot use slow breathing to regulate my mind. And yes, I can completely regulate my mind. I can stay very patient for minutes at a time, think very little. When I do think it's very discriminate, it's very intentional, it's very positive, it's very honest, it's very clear. And therefore, the mind does have an ability to regulate itself regardless of breathing or not, and regardless of stress or not. So that's what I practice. And of course, it's a spiritual practice because aren't we souls? If you ask anybody, do you have a soul? They're going to be like, yeah, nobody wants to not have a soul. So if I ask you, okay, so where's your soul today? Is it in a drawer? Is it in a backpack? Where is it? Obviously, you don't store it anywhere because that's what you are. So you have one. You are you have one because you are one. Do you think that that soul goes to sleep? Do you think that that soul is not used and it's dormant? No, it's always there. There's no switch off. So what is the nature of the life of a soul? Obviously, it's a spiritual nature. That's the whole f- point of it. <laughs> So it doesn't matter that we talk about cooking, gardening, music, wine, politics, religion, about a so-called spiritual topic or non-spiritual topic, entertainment, what's on Netflix, whatever. All of it, all of it is spiritual. Spirituality is when you become very mindful about that reality and decide to explore it and to express express that nature of who we are, that fundamental nature of who we are, in a way that is the most meaningful to you, most rewarding and most pleasant to you. That's what it is. I want to go a slightly different direction. You started, I can't remember if we were recording when you said this or not, but... You said you could go into the science if you needed to, but you're you're more of an intuitive person. There's there's probably more story than we have time for, but my question to cut to the chase is: Has this physical practice 
Have you noticed if it has increased the power of your intuition? Do you see a connection between intuition and and this particular type of practice? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Because, well, so I've always been an intuitive person. I also have explored, it's more than explored, the entheogenic worlds, psychedelic worlds, tremendously, as in a lot, very deeply. Clearly, it has not destroyed my brain. But since I have started to practice almost four years ago now, breath holding as a meditation, I have not done it at all. I've not done it. I've not had the desire to do any of those called ceremonies, psychedelic journeys where you use endogenous molecules to to trigger altered state of mind, which are a way to explore your own psyche and to understand the nature of things. And yes, I've had uh, multiple episodes of visions. Uh, I'm not talking about, hey, I can predict the future now. I'm talking about spontaneous, transcendental-like visions that are in fact insights of visuals and insights while holding my breath. But this is not common. Some of my students have uh, reported the same. Um, And the reason is because we're talking about intuition. So when we talk about intuition, what is intuition? All of a sudden, you know something and you don't even know how you know it, right? That's what intuition is about. Which means that there are layers of cognition that exist and that are active and that operates way beyond and below our conscious representations. So the activity of our conscious thinking, conscious mind, is not our only way of knowing reality and navigating through reality. Unfortunately, it's just, let's give a simple metaphor. You look at your screen the screen of your computer, and that's the representation. Like You could change what's on that screen anytime you want. The same way when we change subject, you change preoccupation, all of a sudden your conscious mind is completely busy with something else. So it's like you change the content of the screen. But you have the hard drive, and then you have the internet. So... In the mind, the conscious mind is the screen. The hard drive is all the layers of cognition, cognitive ability, cognitive function in your brain. And then you have the internet. And then you have the ability to receive and send out and receive information. And that's nonlinear. And that's not Newtonian. That's somehow like quantum, whatever you want to call it. Shamans seers, all the, you know, healers, intuitive people, all these people know about it. Others just dismiss it as some kind of woo-woo thing that can't, is incomprehensible and is not scientifically verified and valid. It's okay. It's, I don't mind people believing that way. But again, what you believe defines your experience, including what you don't believe in, sets limits 
to your journey. So intuition is real. Intuition is when your cognition is able to go deep, 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 operate beyond your conscious thinking and go find data and information. And all of a sudden, you get the insight. Oh, intuition. Where does that come from? Who cares? But it's there. That's intuition. So when you practice meditation, that you breathe, that you don't breathe, all these practices have the ability to give you more of that intuition, to clear up some areas of your mind, remove some of the limitations, and give you access to more cognitive output and input. Yeah, so fascinating. You know, I mean, certainly in medicine, we recognize the role that the mind plays, but we tend to ignore it because we can't measure it and we don't think we have a ways of controlling it or manipulating it, you know, as we often ter- times turn to in medicine. Uh, but uh, it, it's so fascinating. Even as I've gone through my exploration journey around all of this health stuff and nutrition and all that to see how you keep coming back, you know, it keeps bringing you back to mindset and to the mind as. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.